welcome to Fuel Training. In this podcast, we hear from Kate Middleton, psychologist and leader at Hitching Christian Centre, sharing on Running Riot. Hello everyone. So if you haven't met me before, I'm Kate and I'm a psychologist. That's not a confession. It's just an explanation of where I'm coming from. I'm also on the leadership here and amongst other things, I oversee the youth and kids leaders. So tonight I'm going to very quickly go through some stuff, hopefully some tips for the kids in your groups who are probably giving you a nightmare. The kids who, to be honest, when they don't come, you're quite pleased if there's a week that they don't turn, that they don't turn up. And I'm going to address it very much the way I would as a psychologist if somebody's coming to tell me about a kid or I've been referred a child who's having trouble. So hopefully that'll be a bit of a new perspective for you. And I want to look, first of all, is it them? Is there something to do with that, with that child that's causing you a problem and some of the most common clinical issues that you might come across? I'm also going to look at, is it us? Is it something to do with the way that we're interacting with that child? Is there stuff that we could do that would help them or that might change the pattern of behavior that we're getting? And if we get time, we'll look at some ideas. And throughout, I'm going to talk about sort of what you can do about it. Okay? Quick show of hands. Who's working with primary age kids? Pretty much anyone secondary? couple of secondary, okay. So what I'm talking about, just some of it's going to be slanted more to primary, but that's just because that's the age that these issues tend to first present at. So I'll try and sort of um, give some secondary relevant info as well, but um, that's why the focus might feel a bit more primary. So let's start with is it, the, is it them? So if someone comes to me to talk about a kid in their group who's causing trouble, usually what they want to know is, is there some kind of actual problem that I would diagnose? So I'm going to run through what the most common problems are, uh, and you can, as you can hear some of the symptoms and stuff, you might be thinking about some of the kids. You might have kids who've already got diagnoses of some of these things, or maybe you just think that they should have diagnoses of some of these things, but let's go through them. So the first one is ADHD. Anyone got kids in their group who are diagnosed? It's hugely common, increasingly so. Officially, it affects one in 100 girls and one in 25 boys. So it's much, much more common in boys than it is in girls. And there is a psychologist, if I'm going to diagnose someone with ADHD, there's three types of behavior I have to see. So we all have a kind of stereotype of the ADHD kid who is basically a pain in the neck. They won't sit down, they won't shut up. But this is what I'd be looking for if I was trying to diagnose them. So the first category is to do with how they um, can pay attention to stuff, how they can focus attention, basically because they can't. And they can't do it for very long if they ever do. So you're looking for stuff where they've struggled with attention, callous mistakes, they can't listen to or they can't follow instructions properly, so if you give them a list of instructions, they can probably do the first two, but they lose the others. So if you say to everyone, pick up your mat, um, go and get a drink, get a biscuit, and then come back and sit down, they might put their mat away, and then they just start running around around the room because they haven't listened to the rest of your directions. So watch out for that in particular. In general, if you're working with with kids when you've got some with um, learning difficulties or behavioral issues, it's good to keep your commands really simple, one thing at a time, tell them all to go and put their mats back, then tell them all to go and get a drink, then tell them all to come back and sit down because it just works better. And that's because some kids will struggle with listening to long lists of directions. 
other thing is hyperactivity. So this is just the kid who won't sit still. So you know about it if they're there because they're just running round and round constantly and they're bouncing off the walls and they fidget. They are unable to sit still. They talk constantly. It's worth pointing out at this stage, I have a seven-year-old girl and she sometimes displays quite a lot of these symptoms and she doesn't have ADHD. She's just a normal seven-year-old girl. She talks all the time. She will not sit still. So just be aware that normal kids also show a lot of these symptoms. So you're looking for kids who always show these symptoms. It's much more frequent than, than other kids. Impulsivity, so kids who cannot hold themselves back, so they interrupt all the time, they aren't, try and answer questions before you've got to the end of the question, they cannot wait their turn. And you might see things with uh, either vocal or motor tics, so that's um, little twitches or shouting stuff out, things like that, although that's a little bit less common. So you're looking for all three for a diagnosis of ADHD. It's also, the symptoms have got to be seen before age of seven, technically, for a diagnosis. So if you've got kids of 8, 9, 10 or secondary school age who are showing symptoms, you will struggle or parents will struggle to get a diagnosis if they weren't present much, much younger than that. You also have to see symptoms across more than one setting, actually in two or more settings. So if the kid is a nightmare at home but they're fine in school, then it wouldn't be ADHD. If they are fine in school but they struggle in your sessions, again, that would be a sign against a diagnosis of ADHD. So you might just have a difficult child rather than one who's actually got a diagnosable problem. ADHD can be treated slightly controversially with drug treatment, which, which helps them to control their symptoms, the theory being that there's an actual imbalance chemically in the brains of some children and the drug treatment does something towards correcting that and helping them to manage better. But that's actually not going to be that much use to you because most kids who are drug treated take their drugs in the day for when they're at school and because they're quite strong drugs they don't take them 24 hours a day and the times that the drugs are least active will be the times like the evenings and the weekends which is probably when you see them so um, actually you'll probably see them when they're less drug treated anyway, which might be why they're so much fun to have in your sessions. So the next group of kids would be those who are on the autistic spectrum somewhere. Anybody got kids in groups on the autistic spectrum? Sometimes it might be the same kids. You quite often get kids who've been diagnosed with an autistic spectrum disorder, ASD, and ADHD. We like using letters, psychologists, because it just makes us feel important, I think. So ADHD and ASD are two different things. You've got this slide, a nice set of the sorts of symptoms that we're looking for in kids who are on the autistic spectrum. It is a spectrum, so at one end you've got kids who show much more strongly the symptoms. At the other end you've got kids who don't show that many. Uh, and you've got kids who are at a lower level on the autistic spectrum who function relatively normally and do perfectly well. On the other end you might have kids who are profoundly affected and really, really struggle. And you're looking for a whole set of things. One in 100 kids are diagnosed with some kind of autistic spectrum disorder. So one thing you're looking at is problems with social interaction. So they struggle to communicate. You're looking for things like they cannot make eye contact, which is a fairly classic one. They will struggle with things like pointing things out. Anything that requires that kind of mind reading level of communication, understanding what you're thinking that you haven't actually verbalized. So you're some kind of problem with that. They struggle with friendships, struggle with normal relationships 
with other adults and kids. Then you've got problems with communication, problems with talking, problems with explaining themselves, sometimes just literally problems with verbal communication. They interpret things differently, particularly they are, will interpret some things you say very, very literally. So you're looking at kids who seem to see the world in a different way. And then you're looking at kids who are like routine, but in a, in a way that becomes problematic. So children on the autistic spectrum very often become very fixed in routines. They find changes to their routine really difficult. So if, you, if they all come back after Easter break and you've repainted the room, somebody, a kid on the autistic spectrum might find that really alarming, very, very difficult, because it's, it's a change and they're not good at handling change. So you're looking for kids who have a repetitive or um, patterns of behavior that actually become restrictive because they cannot handle the change. This one, for a diagnosis of autistic spectrum disorder, the behaviours and patterns should have been visible before the age of three. So again, you're looking at older kids who might start to show symptoms when they're further up primary school who are going to struggle to get a diagnosis, and you'll find that psychologists will be reticent to diagnose it because technically it usually appears much younger. So both ADHD and ASD, you've got a set of symptoms which you can see in kids who don't have either of those disorders, so particularly kids who come from chaotic backgrounds, who might have had very unstable starts to the, in the world, particularly with what's called attachment, so that's the first care person who gives them care, so mum or dad or whoever that is. If there hasn't been a good attachment, very often you'll see that children display these sorts of symptoms anyway. And there is a huge debate in the world of psychology as to whether those kids have one of these problems uh, or whether we're just treating the symptom when there actually isn't an underlying condition. And you can debate that for the kids in your groups till the cows come home. At the end of the day, it doesn't make that much difference to the behavior that you're faced with in your group. But if you do have kids who've got these diagnoses, that's what they mean. A few others that it's just worth thinking about if you've got kids who are causing trouble. Dyspraxia is more common than you would think, and it's children for whom the physical motor control just takes longer to develop than it normally would. And some of those kids have a long-term ongoing problem with it. So they struggle particularly with anything that requires a sort of fine degree of motor control. So particularly things like writing. And these are kids with the really, really bad handwriting. Um, but they also struggle with games that require them to coordinate themselves quite a lot. So running games where they have to pick stuff up, um, throwing games, stuff like that. They are classically quite clumsy kids. They get into trouble a lot. They can get teased. They can struggle with sports days and stuff like that. So don't forget it and be aware of that as a potential issue if you've got a kid who just seems to be very accident prone and clumsy. Don't forget that some kids are just angry, some kids are just cross, and most of the ones that are cross that I've seen have a really good reason to be cross. Some kids have come from pretty horrendous, chaotic backgrounds, and they are just cross, and they will exhibit the signs of being cross. And the more that you do good work of being a solid, stable, friendly person who they can trust, the more they will display their crossness with you. So it's kind of a compliment, because they feel safe with you, they know that they can take a risk with their relationship with you. So they will yell and scream and behave hideously. And that's a good thing because, uh, because it's good for them to have a place to express it. It's just it's kind of inconvenient when it, you're trying to teach a whole group of 30 kids. But so remember that. Maybe if you have a kid who you know comes from a chaotic background, think about whether that kid would benefit from some kind of one-to-one -one mentoring. Are 
are there other emotions, other difficulties that that kid could do? You can't handle them in a group. So we've had kids who've come into some of our group settings here after they've had one-to-one -one mentoring in school, and it's then been it's completely transformed them in terms of what they're able to bring into a group. So think about it. Maybe you've got a kid who would benefit from, from some kind of extra help. Some kids are just sad, and you know, kids, particularly little kids, they cannot process sad very well. They find it quite difficult to put it into words. So big kinds of sad, like bereavement, are tremendously difficult for them to process and deal with. And what do they display? Anger. Again, you get kids who are angry, who are just playing up, who are kicking off everywhere. And if a kid needs attention for some reason, the only way a lot of kids know to get attention is to misbehave, because then you will notice them. And although to you it might seem really negative, if they start kicking off and therefore you stop talking to 30 people and suddenly all the leaders are focused on them, even if they're telling them off, to a child that's positive. And maybe you've got a kid who has always been the bad kid, the naughty kid. Kids, that's what they expect. They come into your session expecting to be naughty. They expect to get into trouble. That's what they do. So whereas for you this is, you know, a real nuisance, for them it's just normal. So sometimes you've got to think about kids. Where are they coming from? And think about whether they will benefit from some different kind of support. Maybe pulling one of your leaders out for six weeks so that they get some one-to-one -one support to look at some other stuff that's going on. Or maybe they need some other help. Maybe you do actually need to chat to mum and dad or whoever the caregiver is and talk about maybe talking to a GP, maybe seeing if there is another problem that they could get some help for. Remember though, in a way all of these diagnoses actually don't make that much difference to you guys on the ground. People always want to know from me, do I think this kid's got ADHD, do I think this kid's, you know, whatever it is. To be honest, it makes very little difference to you. You still have to deal with them. You still have to handle their behaviours. It might give you some extra clues. So kids on the autistic spectrum, for example, sometimes have problems with sensory disorders and they find certain sensations just overwhelming, like a lot of noise or bright light and stuff, anything that's stimulating they sometimes struggle with. So sometimes in a group when suddenly you play a noisy game and they go mad, it might just be that they cannot handle the noise at all. So a diagnosis of autistic spectrum might sometimes change the way that you think about what a kid's doing and why. But most of the time you've still got to handle the behaviour. So just remember that a label, if they ever get one, should be positive. A label should never be a negative thing. So, oh, they've got ADHD, we don't need to bother with them. Oh, you know, they've got ADHD, so they just can't come to the group, or they're not going to be able to listen. None of these disorders mean that kids can't learn. None of these disorders mean that kids can't come to groups. It just means that you might need to think a bit differently about how you approach them. And this is the, what I want to talk about next, which is the whole thing of how do we approach kids in our groups? How do we interact with them? Is there stuff about the way, things that we're doing that might change stuff, that might help us? So just a few things to think about. And I'm not going to talk about the, all the usual stuff about setting boundaries, having clearly defined behaviours that, that, you know, that they have to stick to, because I'm sure you've heard all of that before. So I'm just going to kind of assume that you know that stuff. But as well as that... Think about where your kids have come from. So on the first level, I mean that literally. Where have they just come from when they come to your group? What time of day do they come to you? So for example, if your kids have just come from school, they've spent the whole day 
stay in school being controlled and hopefully well behaved and hopefully sitting still and hopefully listening by the time they get to your session they want to run and be noisy and they don't want to you know sit still anymore and some of them particularly the younger ones genuinely will struggle they need to have some time to let off some steam first if they've just come from somewhere that is lively and loud so in our church for example the kids come out of the sessions uh, quite close to the beginning of our worship so it's quite noisy they've usually been dancing at the front and if they come up here and we have a room that's completely silent and we want them to sit around a table and sit still and wait until we finish registering all the kids of course they're going to kick off because it's so boring compared to what they've just come from so we've got to be lively we've got to try and match the mood that they're coming in with so think about literally where have they just come from are you asking too, too immediate a transition or are you trying to get them to do something that they're just not in the right place to do at that particular time you might need to give them a little bit of a of a change zone so that you can ease them into where you want them so give them a chance to run around first so in our groups we have a rule that when they first come in that they should always be some kind of game or activity or something so it's fun and if they need to run off some steam that they get to do that before we then ask them to sit still and listen think about where they've come from in terms of their parent background so this is the hear no evil see no evil speak no evil style of parenting where sometimes you've got kids who haven't had uh, a lot of input from parenting in terms of setting boundaries telling them what kind of behavior is and isn't acceptable some kids come from very boundaried homes and will be used to it so if you give them a list of rules they know rules they're used to it some of the kids haven't and sometimes it's quite useful if you've got a problem child to wait till mum or dad or whoever it is who looks after them picks them up and just watch them and watch how they interact because you'll see what kind of behaviors the parent thinks is acceptable and how they parent them and if you've got a kid who's doing something that at home is completely acceptable but to you isn't you're going to have to address perhaps chatting to mum or in the way that you chat with a child the fact that it is totally different usually they're going to get used to the fact anyway because in school they're going to get taught boundaries and they're going to have to try and sit and listen but we're probably talking about kids who struggle in school too so again you might have a kid who needs some extra help with just learning how they stick to basic rules so think about where they've come from and what style of parenting they're used to think about a label they may have had at home are they used to being the trouble kid because some kids have never ever been good and successful you know most kids luckily have you know got some kind of accolade for something we're talking about kids who may always be the naughty kid so like I said if you start yelling at them that's nothing new everyone yells at them you're looking to try and change the pattern but to them that's just reality so you might have to engineer some situations where they start to get the other experience where they actually do something well maybe put them in charge of something and it may seem completely counter logical to do it but sometimes you've got to give them the experience of the positive stuff sometimes before they can realize that that's something they want they may never ever have seen that before so it's all about expectations really what are you expecting and what are they expecting compared to the reality and think about what your expectations are for the group and what the kids who come to your group are expecting too so if this is what you're expecting a nice little set of pleasant children who will sit and listen to you but if you are selling your group on the basis of you know come and throw guns at the leaders and play crazy games 
the kids are coming expecting to throw guns at the leaders and play crazy games, they might be a bit affronted when you start yelling at them for not sitting still and listening because that wasn't what they thought they were coming to. So just think, what are the expectations? And this is why agreeing rules and agreeing boundaries with kids in your groups is so important because it makes sure that you and they are coming from the same place in terms of what you're expecting. Think about, particularly those of you with younger kids, what are the normal sort of things that would be appropriate for that age. So sometimes people are just, you're just expecting way too much of kids. So as a rough rule, the normal attention span of a child is about three minutes per year of their age. Those of you in secondary school kids, you can't like keep doing that some forever. <laughs> At some point, you know, it depends on how interesting you are. But um, for the younger kids in particular, you can do that some. But that's like the optimum attention and there are loads of things that decrease, that decrease a kid's attention span so the more bored they are the less of their attention span so I, I mean that seriously if you're boring then the kids will play up they won't just doze off like adults do if a sermon's a bit boring if you're boring the kids will kick off because they like having fun so you just have to be a bit less boring sometimes if they're tired, they can't attend so well. So if you run groups at the end of the day in the evening, again, just be, be realistic about what you're going to get out of them. You might need to do the stuff where they pay attention a bit earlier in the evening, but you probably can't do it straight away because they need to relax after school. So just be careful of what you're expecting of them. If their blood sugar's low, they can't pay attention so well. So just be careful. If they're, if they're likely to be hungry, you might want to consider feeding them. Give them a quick tea. Potato and some beans can work wonders for how well a kid can pay attention in your session. Don't give them sugar because it pushes their sh blood sugar up, and then when their body corrects that peak, they end up even lower blood sugar than when they started, and that's normally just about when you start to try and talk to them. Don't give them caffeine and try and control if they're having caffeine before your session. Particularly some teenagers are pretty caffeined up most of the day and therefore they struggle to concentrate on pretty much anything. So if that's an issue in your group, you might need to talk to them sometimes about caffeine. What does it do? How does it affect you? Um, and, and address the issue that way. Watch, watch it with additives if you give the kids orange squash when they get here. Ooh. Oh, wild jumping from my slides. If you give them orange squash before they get there, some of the kids might react badly to the colouring in it. The sugar in it, again, might be an issue. And the sweets. Every youth worker with any sense gives the kids the sweets at the end before they go home, not at the beginning when they arrive. Okay, very, very quickly. So, we know about boundaries, setting clear rules about behaviour. Kids need to know what's expected of them to stick to it. The main thing with these is about consistency though, so I like that quote much better. If you set a rule, you've all got to stick to it, and you've got to stick to it all the time. You cannot have different rules for different kids. The exception to this is if you've got a kid who has got a diagnosed disorder, and you might need to plan something different. I'm a big fan of planned behavior contracts with kids who are struggling, and you might lower the expectation for some of them. You might agree time out space where they can go. You might agree some different stuff for those kids, but still you're gonna set out very clearly what you're expecting, and you're going 
to set clear consequences if they break the rules and then you're going to stick to them and all the leaders will do it even if you feel really cruel for doing it why I have a very quick rat illustration I'm not comparing your kids to rats it's just that there's, there's some experiments on how we learn and how we model behavior basically the, if the rats are taught that they run down a tunnel and they get cheese so that you have a behavior that's rewarded in some way and then in the study they, they stop putting cheese at the end and sometimes they even replace it with an electric shock so if the rat runs down there they get a nasty surprise not a good one how long do you think it takes the rat to stop running down the tunnel well the answer is it varies according to how consistent it is if every once in a while instead of the nasty shot you chuck a piece of cheese in they will keep running down that tunnel for ages because it's almost like they're thinking well it's worth a try you never know even though they're getting an electric shot when they go down there they're doing it in the hope because sometimes there's cheese so if you're trying to change behavior it is absolutely crucial that you are massively almost anally obsessively consistent and that's it that's pretty hard to do but it's possible so talk to all the leaders agree your strategy and then make sure you stick to it I hope that's vaguely helpful a bit of a whistle-stop tool there really but um, I'm around at the end so if you've got further questions or if you want to come and tell me about your nightmare children in your group then feel free and I might have a few more ideas you never know Thank you for listening to this Fuel Training Podcast. The next event is happening on Tuesday the 24th of September 2013. More details to follow.